Before we dive in, let's take a moment, let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, we have your word. That's important. A lot of what we see in society is cleared up pretty quickly when we open the Bible. We thank you for the truth that it is. And I pray today that our hearts are open to receive it. We thank you for the indwelling spirit, but we also thank you for the spirit-inspired word. We know that that design is not by accident. And so we ask, Lord, this morning, please illuminate the text for our understanding. Give us wisdom in regards to it. Give us conviction of how it needs to be applied. Arrest our rebellious thoughts. May your love grapple us into surrender. May the truth of your word cause us to see more clearly how we need you every moment, Lord. And so please bless this time as we're gathered together as the assembly in your name for your purposes to be changed and more into the image of your son. We pray it in his name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 is a hinge. In fact, the first word in the first verse of chapter 4. What is it? Somebody tell me. Hold on, I'm not on. That sounds weird. I'm on. This is on. Yikes. Can you cut that from the live stream? <laughs> Strange. What's the first word in chapter 4, verse 1? Therefore, and because we have good Bible study techniques, we ask what question? What's that there for? What is that there for? Let's remember this. Ephesians is divided up into two halves. This shouldn't surprise us because this is the way that the Spirit has inspired Paul to write many of his letters. So anytime you're reading Paul, you can usually always find a well-reasoned, spiritual, biblical, and therefore logical, truthful explanation of some sort. Of which then at a point in the letter transitions over into an application point. Or he'll... Think of it this way. He'll give you so much of what it is so that he can then give you why it matters. And so what we have seen so far, we've actually reached a major milestone in this. I think it only took us a little over a year to do it. Praise the Lord. So, chapter 1 speaks all about our glorious privileges. We talked about all the spiritual blessings. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every means all which means that we're not lacking in anything. Now, if you were here last Sunday, I gave you a piece of paper that had 52 things that are either now true of us or we now have the potential of for one reason and one reason only. The gospel has come to us in our helpless, sinful state, unable to save ourselves, and we have recognized that Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior who died in our place for our sins. And if you believe in Him, you are now transferred from darkness into light. In this transference, you now have brand new real estate. Everybody like real estate? Yeah? What does Lucy want for Christmas? Real estate. Everybody remember that? Exactly. Anybody else got their Christmas tree up yet? No? Losers, come on. Really? Oh, man. I'm loading it down with so many lights, I have to go to Walmart and buy two more boxes of them, man. I mean, it's, uh, seriously, our, our, if our house burns down, you know what happened. There it is. 
I'm excited. Turkey? Cool. Jesus? Yay. Okay, come on. Get your priorities straight, guys. So, glorious privileges. Everything that we have, we have in Christ. Anything that we brought to the table has now been nailed to the cross, buried with Him, and passed away because we've been raised to a newness of life. And with this newness of life, this eternal life, and the idea that Christ wants to live His life through us, we now have all of these amazing privileges we never had before. We move on and Paul tells us how we got there. We have a glorious position. By grace, we have been saved. Completely undeserving of it, but he's placed us there all because of what his son has done. And then he unfolded his glorious plan. The church has a reason for being. I think it's incredible right now that Israel is having to explain to the media their reason to have existence. That's insane to me. Somebody pick up the only form of truth in this world and set the record straight. The Bible tells us very clear. They are God's chosen people. He has a future for them. I don't know how much, how much more simple to make this situation. But in doing so, there's a glorious plan that is unfolding. And we play a pivotal moment between Acts chapter 2 and the rapture of upholding the evangelization and discipleship of people, no matter where they are, no matter where we go, no matter who comes to us. That is our goal. That's what we are to be about doing. And we are to do it in humility and love all the way through. So now we reach this point where we step into this. From chapters 4, verses 1 through 16, we have a glorious practice. What does it look like? How is it supposed to go down? If we're supposed to reach the lost and we're supposed to disciple people... Give us the basic mechanics. There's a lot of liberty and freedom in that. This isn't legalism. They're not trying to nail us down to the ground. But they are trying to give some basic guidelines that Paul wants to share. Because you have been saved, and because you've been saved in this grand and glorious way, here's what ought to be flowing out of that. Chapter 4, verse 17 through 6, 9 is our glorious prescription. Now we're going to get a little bit more detailed. How do you deal with life? Good grief, if the Bible didn't tell us how to deal with anxiety, none of us would do it well. If the Bible didn't tell us how to deal with anger, none of us would do it well because every time we address those issues when they rise up in our life, we always default to the flesh. We always. And somehow we think because we paused for a moment, took a deep breath, and then continued on in a different fleshly way, we did it better. We did not. If we ever do it apart from Christ, it's not good. And that's what Paul's trying to convince us. Because of all that you have in Christ, Every spiritual blessing, which means that Christ is sufficient to meet every need, want, desire, or problem that I have in my life. So anytime I'm operating apart from him, I am wrong. And he's got much that he wants to do. The greatest problem is, is I need to get out of my own way. Sometimes I'm so doggedly determined to be in the flesh that there's no room for the spirit to operate, so he doesn't. That's painful. The last one here is our glorious protection. Why? Because Paul understands all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it does not have to be physical. It can very much be spiritual. And so he wants to explain to us how does a Christian deal with fighting a battle they cannot see? That's how he ends this. Notice that at the front... We have doctrine. This is our wealth in Christ. It talks with our relationship with Him, our standing with Him, and an explanation of what that looks like. But in the second half of the book, we're dealing with our practice. How do we walk? How do we live? If the first part's about position, the second part is about condition. We're no longer talking about relationship. We're talking about the fellowship that comes out of that relationship. We're talking about the state that comes out of that standing. We're talking about this brand new experience that he wants us to have. I love looking through Weast. I love that. You don't get, everybody's looking for a Christmas present. Get on Amazon and put it in your cart. Send it in your wish list to somebody else and go, aha, right? Weast word studies. You'll love it. It'll either enhance your explanations and understanding of the Bible or it'll put you to sleep when you can't, Okay. The first three chapters contain doctrine. The last three, exhortation. This is the proper order, for only in doctrine can one see the sweet reasonableness 
of the exhortations and obtain the necessary power and technique to obey them. In brief, God says in chapters 1 through 3, I have made you a saint. In chapters 4 through 6, He says, now live a saintly life. That's how that works. Now pay attention why this is important that we are reading the Bible and taking a book from beginning to end, not grabbing piecemeal scriptures here in order to do that. We've got to read it through. Because if you just start in 4 and go to 6 and you don't know what's going on in 1 through 3, you become a legalist. You become someone who is lording over other people, demanding expectations out of them about why they ought to be living a righteous life as you are doing, and you are serving in vain. You have no spiritual fuel in your tank that would convince your heart or mind to move forward and to lean in the Spirit when everything else seems absolutely ridiculous to do so, so that you're living obediently according to the life. Recognize this. The Christ life is not the human life life and if god's word is true then we've got to recognize that it is superior to all other reasonings that we would possibly have the failure comes when we will not trust him that's what happens miles stanford said it this way self-centeredness is the enemy of christ-centeredness automatically somebody's got a rule Somebody has to call the shots. Somebody has to take charge. And it's either me or my Lord. Which one is it for you? We wonder sometimes why we get so frustrated. Not saying that the Christian life doesn't have friction in it. But we wonder sometimes why we get so frustrated in living our lives. And then something comes along in the Bible and it's like an aha moment. Because it's giving us a new way to deal with life. And it's telling us things that are true about us that we're not got in the forefront of our mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's just church talk. It's not church talk. It's who you are. And we have a lot of people living anonymously in the church because they don't know who they are, and therefore they don't have a practice that reflects the grand grace that's been lavished upon them. And then we wonder sometimes why we're so frustrated and we see no fruit in our lives. We see no fruit because we're not rooted and grounded in the doctrine that's been given to us. It's nothing you have to earn. It's everything that's already yours. You just got to use it. I'm not going to use the zombie apocalypse illustration this time, I promise. <laughs> You're welcome. So let's look at this real quick. Ephesians 4.1, here we go. Whoa, stop it. If I'm marking this up, I love, I love the honesty in the body of Christ. Thank you, brother. Just real quick, all of you got something to learn from him, okay? Yeah. Now wait, 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 wait. Let's talk. Let's talk about why I wasn't using red to start out. Is because when I used red, you guys complained. Okay. I'm trying. Love me. I promise it was a more spirit-led decision than it was a self-decision. I wouldn't have chose green. So, therefore, why? It's real simple. Chapters one through three. Recognize this, please. Get this. We will not survive verse, chapters 4, 5, and 6 if we don't know 1 through 3. If our minds are not the sponges that soak in the palm olive of the chapters 1, 2, and 3, we will not make it. We won't. So we need to be absolutely inundated with the idea of what Christ has done, all that we have in Him, God's grand plans, and I'm going to do my best looking at 4, 5, and 6 to tie everything that I can back to why it matters in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So that we understand he had to prime the pump in order to get the water to flow. Because if you're trying to get water without priming the pump, you get nothing. And that's exactly what happens. So notice, therefore I, who are we talking about? Paul. Now notice he brings this up. A prisoner of the Lord. He brought this up in 3.1 if you go back to it. And this is the same thing if you were part of the Philemon class when we started that, we dealt with with, with walking through that, he brings up the idea that he's a prisoner over and over. You see some of these he does. And these are what are called the prison epistles. So you deal with the idea of Philippians is a prison epistle. You deal with the idea of Ephesians excuse, is a prison epistle. 
You deal with Colossians is a prison epistle. You deal with Philemon is a prison epistle. These are all letters that he wrote while he's on house arrest or chained to a guard or, or, or starving or something like that that's going on that he's being persecuted for his faith for the gospel out of wrong accusations by the Jews. And he's writing about all this joy and happiness and blessing and all this amazing stuff. And you're thinking, but you're in prison. The mindset is not of Rome. The Holy Spirit did not have him write, I am a prisoner of Rome. No. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Because Paul understands acutely, wherever I am, because I'm following what God wants me to do, I'm there because Christ has something for me. And he has something for me to do. Boy, we can learn from that. A lot of times we make these willy-nilly decisions, we don't even bother to consult the Lord about it. Well, that seems trivial. He shouldn't be consorted. He's not got anything to say? Has he not got a way that maybe he wants to impress upon us that that might not be the best situation because he, I mean, just dream with me a little bit. He might know what's going to happen in the future that we don't know. That's called omniscience. He has that complete understanding of where our life is going. Why would we not want to just kind of back up a little bit and heed whether or not he's leading us? How else can you have joy and happiness and write about every spiritual blessing in prison if you aren't confident that the Lord has you there? Everybody see that? How many people, your life's goal is to be desirous of living in prison? No, nobody wants that. Do you think Paul wanted that? Okay, so when it happened, what does he do? He entrusts himself to the Lord. We know from reading Acts that if the Lord wanted him out of prison, guess what? He can get him out. Iron doors aren't a problem for him. Iron bars aren't a problem for him. Shackles aren't a problem for him. He just says the word and they out. He even sent angels in to get Peter out. Come this way. <laughs> okay, Lord. You know, he can do it. Sometimes we so freak out about our situation not recognizing that maybe that situation isn't about us. Maybe we're not at the center of it. Maybe we've made an idol of our expectations in the midst of it. Instead, we need to destroy that idol and recognize that Jesus Christ has something for me to do here and I need to be trusting him in this hard situation. Easy to say. Hard to do. This is why we need the encouragement and reminder of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, this situation's terrible. What does the Lord want out of this? We sober up real quick in that. We become a little bit more prayerful about that. So notice, yes, he's a prisoner of the Lord, not of Rome, but he's a prisoner there because God wants him there. Christ has something for him in this situation. Everybody see this word, implore? It's the same idea that if you are looking at ugh, Romans 12, 1. And it's the idea of urge. Here's a good word. I beseech you. I implore you. It's used 50 times by Paul. 50 times. I beg of you. In other words, listen. You ever done that with your kids? We've been having some problems with getting up late in the night because of crying. Daddy! Oh, yeah, see, you know. You know. Oh. For real. I got up the stairs, was surprised I made it. You know, I'm like, I get up there, I need a drink of water. No, no, it gets worse. Next to his bed is a little stool that has his water sitting right there. And I go, son, your water's right here. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I implore you by the mercies of the Lord, go to sleep. Right? It's like that, only positive. I beg of you. Or say it this way, because we know how this is. You'll have people that will come to you for advice. And the Lord sparks in your heart an answer to give them. You're like, whoa, the Holy Spirit gave me an answer. This is great. And you tell them. And you know that they might as well not even have talked to you. Because they're really not going to do what you say they should do. Give advice, help, whatever like that. You know that they were just like, please condone my sin. And we say, no, you should really do this. 
And we want better for the person than what they want for themselves. And we might even resort to saying, I implore you. Listen to me. I beg you, don't make this mistake. The Lord might even give you insight into what will happen if they do. And you say, please. Why does Paul take up this type of emotional response here in chapter 4, verse 1? Well, what does he say? I implore you to walk in a manner. To walk. This isn't changing your posture or steppage. That's not what this is talking about. For real. Is that Jesus? Who is it? <laughs> Roxanne pointed and I saw Mickey do this. Unbelievable. It's June calling you? What are you picking me up from church? It's okay. Mickey, if you want, if, if you want, just put it in garbage disposal in the, in the kitchen. Let's go. Walk. Oh, it's fun. Stop it. Walk. Let me give you this to you real quick. 29 times Paul uses this, but here's what's interesting about this. Seven in Ephesians. He uses it seven times. Obviously, the walk, the idea of walking in this situation is very important. And here is a definition. The way which one conducts themselves. How you live. Why you make the choices that you do. Why you respond the way that you do. Why do you give those answers? How come you hang out there? Why do you spend your money in that way? Why is it that you like that car? You see what I'm saying? All of that is surrounding of walk because walk is an expression of your purest and greatest conviction. Whatever you really believe is true comes off the table when you begin to live out your life. And so the idea of the way which one conducts themselves, why did you respond like this. Isn't this the whole reason why we're told to train children? It's because we find out that a lot of their responsible or their responses are wrong because their thinking about a situation is wrong. They think they can walk on mom and dad. No. They think that they can put a fork in that light socket. No. You can't. You shouldn't. We implore you. Put the fork down. They can, you're right, but it wouldn't be advantageous. Now, why is it, notice, in a manner. Everybody see this word? This connects to what we just saw in 3, verses 20 and 21. If you want to go in your Bible and look at that, you can. I've got it up here for you. This is the doxology that finishes out that entire... Um, that entire section there. Uh, actually, I have this wrong. That's wrong. I shouldn't have that. Let me go back. 19. I put the wrong ones up there. My bad. Here we go. Go with me to 19 in your Bible. 319. Remember it talked about the length, the depth, the width, the breadth, of the, and to know the love of Christ. Everybody remember that? And to know that love is actually something that surpasses our understanding. It's something that you can't know apart from God. And so the, 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 the plea, the prayer, is that God would make that alive in our hearts, supernaturally speaking. Notice that the focus is on love. Now watch this. What was the reason? Here it is. Look at verse 19. It surpasses knowledge, verse, 13, uh, verse 19, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In other words... The extents of Christ's love being the fuel for the inner man will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. It's what will motivate the walk. Love is an excellent motivation. God uses it all the time. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. 
And so they understand if we get the full expanse of how much Christ loves us and we begin to think about the otherwise unknowable, the Spirit is revealing that to us. It's not something you could just put your finger on and go, yeah, Jesus loves me like that. Of course, the cross is the demonstration of God's love. We understand that. But isn't there so much more that flowed out of the cross than just saving us from our sins? Yes, that's grand and glorious and wonderful, but sometimes that's all we talk about. So this immediately connects to the idea of he wants us filled to fullness. How would you feel if you went to a restaurant and the lady put down your cup and filled in like an ounce and walked away? You'd go, done. Is it good for anything else but that? Boy, all that was was a swallow. You'd feel gypped. You'd feel cheated. Did we say the word gypped up here? Okay, just make sure. Good. Don't know. Not looking to offend anybody. Just stop. Murph, just do this, okay? We would feel swindled in some way. Wait a second. This should be more. Yes, it should be. And God knows this. And God's desire is to fill us to the full. But if we don't have a grasp of His love, the idea of a manner in which we will walk will never take place. What manner? A manner of understanding the otherwise unknowable and unfathomable vast lengths and depths of Jesus' love for me. Good grief, that'll that'll light a heart on fire right there. If I know the Spirit is revealing these things to me. But here's a question. Do we contemplate Christ enough for that to happen? Have we sat down and really pondered upon His person and what He's done? If I asked for a definition of atonement, could you give it to me? If I asked for the idea that He didn't just justify us, but He sanctifies us, and He's looking to glorify us, can you explain that? We should be able to. Why? Because it's the very crux of our life. We're just living in ignorance of it sometimes. And it affects the way that we walk. It affects the way that we respond. It affects the way that we interact with other people. And when we interact in ways that are ignorant of what Christ has already done for us, we respond in ways that are ignorant of Christ in us. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't? Yes? Who's with me? Who's asleep? Okay, just make sure. About 12 of you. This is not looking good. Now here's the kicker. It's not just a walk in any manner. God desiring to fill up his kids so that they're bursting in full, that they come to a full maturity as they ought to. We all want our kids to come to a full maturity. But notice it's walking in a manner worthy. Everybody see this? Stop it. There we go. Manner worthy. This is why I've given you this in your booklets. The reason is, is because this Greek word, axios, it's an adverb meaning in a manner worthy of The adjective form means having the weight or weighing as much as another thing. In other words, when we become more enraptured with what God has done for us in Christ, freely by His grace, all because of His motivating love towards people, and we have this incredible uh, position. I'm sorry, I've got these backwards, walk in wealth. What was I thinking this week? Those should be switched. Or don't pay attention. There. When we recognize the grand position that we have in Christ, it can't help but to give way to a glorious position. But notice what he's saying here. Walk in a manner worthy as much as it's been weighed out for you by the free grace of Jesus. So live in such a way as to where you seek to balance the scales with your life. Take that and use it. Put it to work. May it become weight that brings the scales into balance. Now that may sound like it's heavy on you. Well, now I've got to do this, and now I've got to do this. Stop. That's exactly what the enemy would want you to think. Is that all of a sudden you need to get busy for Jesus? No. You just simply need to live in light of what's already true of you, and the condition happens. But if we don't believe it, it won't take place. This is why the focus is constantly on the mind, the mind, the mind. That you would know the love of Christ. That's why it comes into this. Again, we word studies. Christmas is coming. So notice it says here. Is that up there? It is up there. What is going on? Okay. 
Notice to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling with which you have been called. We're going to answer that in a second of what it is. Let's sort out some things real quick about what we need to look at. The believer in Christ must come to terms with three facts. There are three things. If you wouldn't mind in your margin there, I'd like you to jot these down to recognize what happens. Because this will help get us on the track of, okay, how does my walk begin to look worthy in this way? If we can think according to these three things, I think it will help us tremendously. Number one, we were not walking before Him. Before He came into our lives, whatever we think we were doing, we were not walking as a way that He wants us to walk. In fact, go back to chapter 2 of Ephesians and take a look at it. What does it say? And you were what? Dead. You ever seen a dead person walk? Boy, it's weird. Only in the movies. Only in the movies. The zombie apocalypse. Thank you, Jamie. That's the only way that you see it. Is it ever a good thing? No. You know what? In a moral scale, we lick our finger and hold it to the wind. We say, that's not good. For dead people to be walking. What was the problem? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly what? You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan with his knitting needles creating the grand fabric of this world, this system. We used to fall right in line with it. In fact, too many of us still feel at home in that system and we wonder why there's complacency in our walk with Christ, why there's barrenness with Jesus. There's barrenness with Jesus because we already have another master which we really like a lot. There's a lot less friction there. It's in how we went with the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience present time among them too sorry among them we personal inclusive pronoun paul includes himself we too all formerly lived lived as walking dead full of trespasses and sins we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh notice it what didn't have to just be satan in the world okay us what our flesh lusted after we were indulging in the desires of flesh and of the mind this is why the mind has to be renewed we have to become living sacrifices and only doctrine chapters 1 2 and 3 will do that and we're by nature by nature by our very nature children of wrath even as the rest you know what it's saying everybody was dead everybody was guilty and every way that people tried to walk and make decisions was godless period make no excuses about the fact that we were all totally utterly and helplessly depraved before we knew jesus it is where we all start and if we forget that we stop being able to identify with people who need to hear the gospel message we have to remain aware of that but one thing i know is we didn't walk in that way here's another thing if you move down in that chapter and look at verse 12 look at this remember that you were at that time separate from christ excluded from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenant of the promises having no hope no hope and without god in the world Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Really? Help me, Jesus Christ. There is no hope. You are my only hope. That's the first thing. The second thing. We cannot walk without Him. How many of you... This is a loaded question. But I know it's going to get good participation because if it doesn't, you're going to hear about it the rest of the week. How many of you love doing things with your spouse? Ah, 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 ah. Some of you are like, it's okay, I know who you're married to, it's all right. You guys are getting it now, yeah, exactly. How well do you do without them? Let me just do this real quick. I love you. I'm sorry. I'm going to do this to you. Okay? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. 
It's okay. <laughs> Jay's like, even I know this ain't smart, right? <laughs> My wife is a fantastic cook. She's an incredible cook. See, Jeff even said, yes, she is. Okay, he knows. And, and she's just not making it taste good, but she's very conscientious of health stuff, okay? So she's really like planning, thinking, all of this stuff. I'm sure a lot of you ladies do that, but I don't know you guys. I just know her. Praise the Lord, okay? It's really good stuff. But when she's not with me for a couple of days, no, I hate hot dogs. Leftover meat shoved in a tube is wrong. Stop it. Hot dogs should be banned from society, okay? That's disgusting. But seriously, man, peanut butter and jelly. Why? I can put as much peanut butter on it as I want to. Just eat it. It's easy. In fact, I had a thing going where before I knew her, it didn't matter how long something sat in the fridge. You just add another minute to the microwave. It took care of it. Whatever was green was gone after four minutes. I mean, let's be honest. You burn it right off there. Now, here's the thing. You ladies are giggling. You guys are like, that's the way I did it. (laughs) You know, man, you know. We're much better together than we are separate. At least I am. She's probably much better without me, but together. Ooh. We cannot walk without him. We cannot walk without him. It is impossible to live life apart from Jesus. No one can do it. Many have tried. All have failed. God only helps those that help themselves. That is 1 Benjamin Franklin 1.1. That is not Scripture. John 15. Turn there with me quickly. And I wanted to give this to you because it's such a blatant and pertinent passage. At this point, Jesus knows He's going to be betrayed. He's always known it, of course. But Judas has left. He's dealing with the eleven, and he is speaking to them about truth for believers. And he wants to get their minds around an indispensable fact of their lives that lasted them until their martyrdom or death. Chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, look at verses 3 and 4. You are already quick, already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Notice the word is the means by how they became clean. That's how we know that they are saved. Judas is not there. Abide. It's this word, meno. It's the Greek word that means to remain. Don't get out of the lane. Stay there. If you are driving along, it would be to your dissatisfaction to not abide in that lane. Because when you get in the next lane, you're going to get in a car wreck. So you remain in the lane. You stay there. Abide in me. This doesn't mean it's up to you to secure your own salvation. It means that if Christ has already given everything to you, where else is there to go? Everything is a severe step down. Abide in me, and I in you. Notice the interconnectedness of it. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He goes on, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, again, notice the interconnectedness of them. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do, please understand this, you cannot walk without him. Any walk as a Christian that's worth having is one that Jesus is walking through us. Not us walking and trying to do better. Remember this. God is not interested in polishing up us. He's not interested in that. 
He's interested in bringing us to the cross and crucifying us and burying us so that he can resurrect us so his son can live life through us. Eternal life is Jesus' life, not ours. And it's not just something out in the future. It's something he wants to do now in every one of us. We play no part in that. The best thing we could do is put our hands behind our head and admit defeat, wave the white flag, and surrender. Get arrested by Christ. That's how you abide in him. You put your hand in your pockets and you stop. Do nothing. We trust he works. It's that simple. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Watch this. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. Everybody gets freaked out of this because of the fire. Oh, this is hell. They weren't really saved. It's not what it is. They gather them. They gather branches, cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Isn't that what they would do with branches that aren't worth anything? Yes. That doesn't mean you're going to hell for not producing fruit. The idea is actually found in the better part of, or in the top part of this. He is thrown away as a branch and dries up. If you're saying, I refuse to be in the vine, all of us have to do is just go out in the front yard, snap a twig off, lay it there, and come back two days later. What good is that branch for? Nothing. All the life has gone out of it. All the vitality is missing. All the strength has become out. It's brittle. It's now withering away. It's falling apart. And that's how a lot of people walk in their lives when they're not abiding in Christ. You cannot walk without Him. He says here, if you abide in me, And notice what he tells you, how it is. What does it look like to abide in him? He tells you, just keep reading the context. And my words abide in you. How do you know the Lord? Through the Scriptures. If we do not begin to have a doctrinal conviction and mental grasp on the Word of God, we will never experientially know Him. It is impossible to get to that epignosis moment if we don't even have a basic handle on who He is. Some of you guys don't read. Read. If you need a better uh, translation that's more compatible with where you're at, fantastic, man. You've got to be in the Scriptures. You've got to be men of the Word. Everything around you that God has designed depends on that. You have got to have your fingers dug deep into the Word of God. Notice what He says, If my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish. How often do we do that and the Word's not abiding? God, if you see fit in your grand mercy and goodness, I need a Porsche. Don't play like we don't. We ask for some of the most asinine things from the Lord, wasting His time in prayer. And it's all because we're ignorant of the doctrine of which instructs us in prayer. We wonder sometimes why we're not having. It's not necessarily because we're not asking. It's because everything in us is keeping us from abiding. Maybe we've never come to that critical moment where we've gotten so tired of ourselves. This is the Romans 7 moment. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Come to the end of yourself and embrace the implanted word of God. That's what renews the mind. That's what renews the will. That's what renews the emotions. Don't wonder why you're all over the place. I'm trying to help us figure it out. Notice, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. It's a promise. It's a promise. You cannot walk without Him. The third one. Some people don't realize this. It's our privilege to walk with Him. Some people don't realize it is our privilege to walk with Him. Hey, we're going to church. Do I have to? No? You're going to be better off if you don't? No? We get to. Pay attention, guys. Watch the news that's not popular. Because this blessing is getting ready to be taken away from us. It's on its way. Might not happen next year. Might not happen in five years. Might not happen in ten years, but it's coming. It is our privilege to walk with Him. It's an honor to walk with Him. Go with me to Galatians 5, please. Galatians chapter 5. Let me give you an example. Because we're actually able to do things now we were never able to do before. We're actually able to live now how we were never able to live before. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that when we came to Christ and believed, 
God kind of picked us up on one side of the threshold, stepped in, dropped us off, and then he left and shut the door behind us to put us in some sort of confined closet. That's legalism. That's what it is. Recognize here, it is a privilege to serve him. Why? Because everywhere that you go, everything that you think, everything that you do, he's right there with you. Always. He is indispensable. So notice it says here, Galatians 5, look at verse 16. But I say, there's our word again, walk how? By the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, there's the answer. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There's the problem. Those people that are dealing with pornography addiction, there's the answer. Walk by the Spirit. And all of a sudden, this desire of the flesh becomes nonsensical and hypocritical. And how could I possibly participate in it anymore because of the grand love of which Christ has loved me? It is actually a ceiling preventing me from being filled up into the, all the fullness that God would have for me. And to walk in that way is to not abide and to be not bearing any fruit and to be considered as a branch that's been disconnected from its life source, good for nothing. Not producing anything. I have a bad problem with lying. I lie all the time. Everybody wants to hear a pastor say that, don't they? What's the prescription? Walk by the Spirit. And that desire to try to one-up everybody or make your Crocodile Dundee story sound better than everybody else's goes out the window. Why is that? Because it's no longer about you and you no longer have to worry about scratching the itch of the idol of self. You crucify it, you lay it low, and you take up this idea of understanding this is how much Christ loved me. I'm not focused on me anymore. I'm focused on Jesus. If I will walk by the Spirit, I will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Why? For, here's the explanation, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. War. That's what it is. The Spirit against the flesh. War. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. You've already got a battle going on because the Spirit wants to live out the life of Christ. Your flesh wants to do what it's always done. They're like, we cannot coexist with this. Somebody's got to win. You don't win by just putting your hands on your hips and deciding that I'm going to live for Jesus today. Praise God. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, maybe while they're doing worship, if I raise my hands, I'll be abiding in Him. No! It's not a switch that you flip. It's a realization that you come to by intaking the vast nature of how much Jesus loves you. And when your mind is focused on that, it just comes out. If you are led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now, in the privacy of your own Bible, if you like, just think in your mind, are these characteristic of you? Which are immorality. This word is sexual immorality. Anytime the NASB uses this in the New Testament, it almost always means that. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Here's what's interesting about sorcery. It's drug use that is not condoned by laws of society. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Wow, what a word, right? And things like these of which I forewarned you just as I forewarned you. So notice, it's been previously stated that those who practice, talking to believers, if this is how you walk, you live your life, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will have no inheritance there. When Jesus comes back to establish His kingdom, and he's doling out inheritances that he has and he's wanting to share with his people, you'll find that you have absolutely nothing because this became the way you lived your life. Are you still saved? Yes. Are you still in the kingdom? Absolutely. What do you have to show for it? Next to nothing. Except for the grace of God. Now we like the positive part. But, I love that 180 degree turn. The fruit of the Spirit, what does that look like? Is, notice this, keep it in mind. This is singular. So when you're walking in the Spirit, 
when you know the Word of God and you're obeying because the Word of God has taken a major precedence in your life, it has now become the conviction that drives you. Truth. Truth in God's Word. This starts to happen. Love. Oh my gosh, hippies been trying to get this forever. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. What are the signs that we see? Love is love. That's not a definition. That's kind of odd. What does that mean? How do you know what love is apart from God? He's the creator. We're his creations. How in the world are we going to make a truth claim on the idea of what love is? Notice it's all subjective. It's all in self. And it all serves self. You know what this tells me? The world's love is an idol. It's a distraction. It's a smokescreen. Notice love, joy. Joy. Let me hear you say joy. Right? Sometimes the only time we ever say this is when we sing joy to the world. The fruit of the Spirit is bearing joy in our life. You know what joy is? It's not just happiness. Happiness is the emotion that comes out because that's contingent upon the happenings in our life. Joy is the ability to have exceeding yay only because of something that is absolutely true in your life. This is why the world shouldn't be able to steal our joy because any thievery that they would try to bring upon me cannot touch the spiritual reality of what I have in Christ. And so if they can't touch it, they can try to cover it up. They can try to get me distracted. They can try to lead me down a bad path. They can try to deceive because that's Satan's way that he does it. The father of lies can try to speak, you're not really saved. Would a saved person really do that? Like I tell you what, a saved person who needs Jesus every moment would have done that. I need him now. Because me didn't get any better. Everything that Jesus did to me is what got better. That's the difference. Joy, peace. How many of us would like some peace? I saw some hands in the back. Praise God. Right here, preacher, I'm getting saved. Patience. Guys, yeah, 2 a.m., exactly. Listen to me. I love you. Don't pray for patience. Stop it. God is not going to put you in situations where you develop patience. Why? He's not interested in developing you. He's interested in His Son teaching you a brand new way to live so that He can live His life through you. He's not interested in developing your patience. Your developed patience is just withholding anger longer. And we wonder sometimes why we blow up over that. We blow up because when well, the Lord's supposed to be teaching me patience, dead. You bust a jugular and you're done. Why? Because you're trying to do it in the flesh. And so you just kind of grimace a little bit and you bear it. Good grief. We all look like we're having a colonoscopy sometimes as we live as Christians. Pause for just a second. Time out. Time out. Because i got to share a story. you got nothing to say here. Listen, here's a reason why. I've noticed that if you guys have got the flu, you won't tell anybody. You guys got COVID, you won't tell anybody. Somebody broke something and is in the hospital getting it stitched up. And you won't tell anybody. But I can walk down this hallway at 9.30 a.m. on a Monday and somebody says, by the way, I got that colonoscopy coming up. And I'll be like, you guys share that freely. And that to me is kind of a big deal. And I don't understand why those other things are not in place. I remember sitting down with Emily one time when she was here. I said, have you ever noticed this? She goes, nah. uh And then we were talking one day and somebody came by and said, by the way, my colonoscopy is this Thursday. And she looked at me like this. And I looked at her and I said, all the time. So, I'm trying to know my audience and use language that you're familiar with. <laughs> I didn't name names, okay? It's just a truth. Has a long history of anyway, we gotta go. Uh children's church workers are gonna come up here. Um kindness. You ever had problems being kind to people? Do you realize that that's natural because we actually have a sin nature and we're 
operate according to that. We need the Spirit to come in and make us kind. I'm just going to be kind next time. No, you're not. Stop. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Husbands, let me say this. As soon as you think that you're beyond temptation of getting involved in an extramarital affair, you've pretty much already signed your death certificate. Because you can't do it. This is why we have all this writing in Proverbs. Stay away from that sultry woman. She's crazy. She'll drag you down. She'll come at you. She'll say good words. Hey, my husband's away. Why don't you come over? What's he say? Run! He gives you the prescription. Well, I think I can handle it. Well, I'm pretty sure that I can get close to the edge so I don't fall over. Don't be stupid, husbands. No, don't be stupid, wives. Know the Word of God. Recognize your absolute helplessness to do anything in a situation and cast yourself upon Christ. Period. It's why He died. Not just to save us, take us to heaven, to give us better lives to live so that we would shine His lights to this dark generation. Self-control. I'm obviously blowing that one right now. Against such things, there is no law. You can't bring anything against it. Why? Because it's universally good because God established it that way. He's the standard. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh because that's the problem here with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, time out, do you live by the Spirit? Is the Spirit of God in you? Absolutely. Let us also walk. Notice. Position. Practice. Now I got to finish this up quickly. Forgive me for how quick I go. Please try to stay with me, okay? I got like 94 more slides. Here's a question Why? You've shown me that I can't walk. I wasn't walking before he came into my life. You've shown me that I can't walk without him. And you've shown me that it's actually a privilege. I can now live in a way that I never could have lived before because of what Jesus has done. Why in the world should I walk in this way? Everybody see the word calling, the calling with which you have been called. What in the world is that? Well, let's go to heaven when you die. No, well, it's the kingdom of God. No, that's not what Ephesians says. The word calling, klesis, is the invitation to, ex- to experience of special privileges and responsibility. The second definition given was a position that one holds. It's what you've been called to, or the calling is, come this way. Because of what you will now see and what the benefits are involved in. We've been called to something like that. Some have translated this as the idea of vocation. Chafer says it this way. Since the divine benefit is no less than the fact that the saved one is raised and seated in the heavenly in Christ Jesus, the corresponding manner of life is no less than that which would normally be required of a heavenly citizen. In other words, I'm not so much concerned about being a citizen of the United States of America as I am joying and glorying in the fact that I'm already a citizen in heaven seated next to Jesus Christ. And so I've been called to something greater. What is that? Take your Bible and turn back with me to Ephesians 1. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is Paul's first prayer. Paul's first prayer. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Here's his first prayer that he brings up. See if you can catch it. I'm not going to show you the slide yet because that was just obnoxiously making it known to you. Look at 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, the epigenosis, the true, accurate, deep, precise, experiential knowledge of Him. This isn't surface level. I know that to be true. It's the idea I've actually touched it with my hands. I I, I am dead certain and said, and because of the depth of this understanding now, I can't live any other way. Notice this is part of the prayer, the knowledge of Him. Notice in verse 18, I pray that is in italics. It's only added there to help understanding, but you don't need it. Okay, so watch this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints." 
Do you realize that if you're a believer in Christ, you are called to the glory of His inheritance in the saints? When it's all said and done, and time stops, and eternity begins, you are the gift that God has set up for Himself to receive. Somebody passes away, will's drawn up, we're going to have a reading of the will. What's my inheritance? Can you imagine God saying, I'm ready to receive my inheritance? And he opens the box and... You got to think when he opens Jay's box, man. (laughs) Think about it. God loves you so much that out of all the things that he could receive when time is over, he wanted you. He sent His Son to die to secure you. Why? So He could receive you to Himself. He could say, look at this. This is why we're trophies of His grace put on display for demons and principalities and powers and Satan to see. Look at these grand objects of grace. Those are my inheritance. They belong to me. When it's all done, this is what I get. And right now, you might be thinking, my heart is dull. It's cold. It's not receiving of this. I don't understand the weight or significance of it. I'm bored by this. Recognize, that's not a God problem. That's an us problem. We have become so callous to living holy lives in light of the truth that we've been given that we wonder why people look at the church as simply an anemic disturbance in society. They will know we are Christians by our love. If that's not spirit-wrought love, it's not love. And if we don't have hearts that are tender and receiving and willing to get out of the way, stop being macho man. Stop being the know-it-all woman. Stop being somebody who has all the answers. It wouldn't hurt any of us to throw our hands up and say, I got nothing to offer you but brokenness, Lord. Guess what? That's something He can use. He is waiting for us to end the struggle so He can get in there and bring us into this fullness. Now I know, I don't want to bore you with this. You guys know I love Tozer. This quote is perfect for this. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to His people. He waits, get this, He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, He waits so long, so very long in vain. You guys realize that as we walk along the path of our life, in whatever way I'll choose to go, I'm just going along my merry way in all this, and right behind us stands the Lord walking along. He's waiting for us to turn around. He waits for that moment. Okay, I guess we're going over here now. Wow, didn't really want to see that. Whoa, they're involved in this. Okay, that's way more important than what my word has to say about it. Okay, and he's seeing all this stuff, all these choices that we're making. All these things that we say, Lord, this is ultimately my value system, and you see it all. And he just waits, and he waits, and he waits. And he's waiting for us to turn around and to cast ourselves upon him and hold him and give up this fight of self-actualized Christianity. It does not glorify the Lord. Lay down your arms. Pick up your white flag. There are some people will say, you'll you'll get that gun when you apply it from my cold dead fingers. Spiritually speaking. And what happens? Jesus waits and waits and waits. What are we told in James? If you draw near to Him, He will what? Draw near to you. He's waiting. Is He waiting on you? Let's pray.
Lord God, how we need a holy desire to fan the flames of the Spirit within us. That You desire for us to walk in a worthy manner. A way that balances the scale of the grace that You've poured into us. Lord, please save us from the conclusion that we might need to get busy for Jesus. Please save us from the idea that we're going to set out to conquer Africa with the Gospel right now. Because in that way, we're still trying to earn acceptance with You, not believing all that You've already said true of us. Lord, save us from that type of mentality. But please bring us to the pinnacle of our frustrations where there's nowhere else to go. If we are just rebellious, continually holding on, continually making the same mistakes over and over, refusing to learn. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. You know our struggle. You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. And yet You love us and You wait and You wait. Help us answer the question today if we've kept You waiting. And help us to lay down all that we think are good answers as to why we've kept You waiting. Father, create in us burning hearts that are desirous of You and Your ways. Only You can do that through the Spirit. Only we can stop fighting and surrender. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.